Evan Waters, thank you for coming in today. Appreciate it. Oh, great to be here. Great to be here in the studio. Yeah, the studio. <laughs> um, uh, I'm curious, we were talking a little bit about you being fun, from Pittsburgh, and um, I've never been to Pittsburgh, even though I'm from Pennsylvania, but if you were to give the me... The Appalachian Mountains divided us, and yeah. you decided not to cross. Never. No never, reason. Never been out there. It's nice. Yeah, it's a great city. Um, if you were going to give me a, a hometown tour, where would you take me? Where oh, were the gosh. first like places on on your list? I, Show you know, off. I think that a lot of people go on the incline, which takes you to Mount Washington, which overlooks three rivers. So Pittsburgh sits at the confluence of three rivers. And so many people go to the top of one of the surrounding hills to look down to see the two rivers join into the Ohio River, which points west. Hmm. So a lot of people go there, and it, they're really cool uh, viniculars that go up to the hillside. And originally, people took them to go down to work in the steel mills. And now they're just for tourists, really, taking it up to the hillside so you can see the rivers below. But yeah, it's, a very, it's very pretty. Yeah. yeah. And despite its reputation. It's a lot, a, of, hi- a cool a lot of hiking and stuff out there? Or? You know what? I wouldn't say in Pittsburgh proper, but maybe in Western PA in general. Yeah. I can't say I'm, I'm too knowledgeable about the hiking scene in Western PA, but I will say that the city itself is, is very nice. I think in some ways it's a mirror of Baltimore in that it used to be much more populous and it's fallen a little bit on harder times, maybe more like the Rust Belt cities like Cleveland, Detroit. So it has some big city qualities, even though now it's a smaller city. Mm-hmm. So I, I do think it's a nice it's a nice place to live, grow up, and it has a lot to offer despite its size. Do you get back there much now, or, or are you pretty uh, rooted in Baltimore now that you... I try to. I, you know, I, it's not that far away. It's only about four and a half hours. So it's, it's a, if you can survive the turnpike, yeah. it's not so bad a trip, really. Yeah. <laughs> and as you know, I'm sure about the turnpike. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I'm surprised you haven't. You know what? I guess it's I've known a lot of people from from Philly and the surrounding areas. And I went to Pitt. So tons of people from eastern part of the state went yeah. there as well. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, I was always surprised to see how many how few people made the trek over to Pittsburgh. How but far, you should try it. I don't know. How far from Philly to uh, Pittsburgh? It, it's a couple of months. It's a Maybe couple f- hours. Four? Uh, oh, probably more than that. The state's a lot longer than you think. Yeah. Because what Philly is probably northeast of here almost. Like we're probably closer in, from Baltimore to Pittsburgh than you are from Philly because of how long the state is. Right. Uh, or at least it feels that way. So, I, yeah, I'd say it's closer to five, six, five hours maybe. Yeah. So you went to a public school there and mm-hmm. you're working at an independent school now. Um, right. Yeah, what are some of the differences, I guess, from your high school experience to uh, what it's like to work at prep school now or, or, or an all-boys school? Well, it, as, a, as a teacher or as a student, if I, I put myself in the... Maybe the just about being, be, like being here, I don't know, or both. It's definitely different. I was, in fact, I was just talking to a teach some juniors, and I was talking to them about the college experience. And I think we were comparing and contrasting our experiences in schools. And I, I don't remember, I don't know about you, but I don't remember the, the crunch for college being this intense. Yeah. And I don't know if that's a distinction between public and private 
or more college preparatory environment, but I never remember thinking about it the way that my students think about it. Yeah. So I, I think that either times have changed, and this is just ubiquitous no matter where you are, or it's a unique quality of a school that's encouraged to prepare you for college I mean, right. in the name. So I don't know if that's true or not, but that it does seem like there's more pressure on on students to think about or, or consider college. Yeah. And I don't remember that being the case, the same case when I was in school. Yeah, it was, I don't know if I had the same situation because I was planning to be recruited for a sport. So I think it was a little bit earlier for me. Right. Like my lacrosse recruiting was so early when, when I was in high That's school. That's a completely different world. Right. Yeah. And it was like, I was a freshman in high school and there were, there were like players, kids my age that were verbally committing to schools when I was a freshman. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I felt yeah. the rush and the push for college a little bit mm-hmm. at that time. Yeah. But it was way different than I think, you know, you're a senior in your senior fall applying to all these schools, writing all right. these essays. and Right. Well, yeah. So I played soccer in high school, and they were actively not recruiting me for my soccer play. <laughs> I had, <laughs> I have to make sure that, that no one saw any video of me play soccer if I wanted to get into a school, even if it wasn't for sports. That's how bad I was. But uh, no, so it was, that's true. I think in some ways there's an, an analogy with intense sport recruitment and the independent school network at a certain level where there's a lot of concern about colleges, but then also thinking about it earlier and earlier. Yeah. Like the athletic track in some ways prepares you for thinking about recruitment and retention in a way that an intense independent school will do the same, thinking about college. Yeah. So yeah, I don't, I don't remember the pressure being on me like it is uh, for some of my students, but again, it could be time and it could be the different environment. Mm-hmm. But I've only taught at the independent level, I mean, at the secondary level, pardon me, at independent schools. So I don't have a good point of comparison as a teacher, uh, other than what I would assume is a lot more flexibility in teaching and classes, the kinds of classes you can take and teach. And then also, the, of course, the resources. That's a, a big difference from my public school education. Right. How did you know that you wanted to get into teaching or I guess your, your line of study first and then after that teaching probably, right? Right. So the, these were two interrelated questions for me. I, I really like the classics. So the study of the ancient Mediterranean world, especially Greek and Latin. So Greco-Roman antiquity generally. I always liked it. I thought it was fascinating. Like back in high school? Oh, yeah. Middle school maybe? Uh, even earlier. Wow. I remember finding in uh, I remember finding in a library an old book that was just a really ancient illustrated history of the ancient world and it had the Mesopotamians and the Greeks and I thought it was just fascinating very evocative and mythology like so many I think for so many people we we find it captivating and different very different from our own experiences like what is this culture why why do they worship these gods? It's very weird. Mm-hmm. And, but in, in an arresting way, in a very engaging way. And so the more you're interested in that culture, the more you're sucked into it, the more you feel like, well, I need to know the history of these people. But also I need to know the language and what they wrote. And so that leads you from maybe myth to ancient history to Greek and Latin as languages and literatures. Hmm. So I fell in really early, surprisingly enough, even though I wasn't studying Latin or Greek really early, like some people can do at independent schools. 
but I was really fascinated by the myth and the art. And even from elementary school, gosh, I was wow. really interested. I remember a gym teacher, uh, I was, again, this is related to my lack of uh, soccer excellence. I remember a gym teacher saying, Evan, pay attention to what we're doing. We don't pretend that you're away in ancient Greece. No way. Yeah, yeah. And at first I was embarrassed, but then I thought, well, you know, it's probably better than this current class. Yeah. <laughs> wow. No, no, it's, it, I, I remember being teased early on for it. And it, in some ways, yeah, it, it's, um, I, I do think the more you, it's strange as, as you age, you think about how you've come to where you are. And yeah, I think I've always had this interest in the ancient world, even if I couldn't identify in what way I was interested or how I could become interested. But then as you look back, you can see the different steps you take to go from being engaged in myth in the ancient world in general, or maybe seeing like a movie with myth and being really interested, and then taking the steps to learn more. And that leads to a lot more discovery and research in a way that you don't expect. Mm -hmm. So no, I didn't expect to be studying classics when I was a kid. But I knew what I liked, right? like the ancient world. I didn't understand it, and I wanted to learn more. So it started with that. Were there opportunities when you were younger in middle or high school to take classes and explore this interest on a deeper level, or was this more of an independent study for you? At the elementary level, it was, I think, like many, many kids who like the classics, it's more film and art and just myths in general. So there's, there's a really cool book. I remember encountering as a kid the Delaire's myth book of Greek myths. You should check it out. It's pretty cool. It has really beautiful illustrations, very evocative. So a lot of it was independent, but then later in world cultures in middle school and then some Latin in high school, I was able to explore it a little bit more. Mm -hmm. But really college, I mean, I was an art kid and I was just talking to my juniors about this. I was more of an art kid in, in high school. I never would have thought I would taught, taught Latin. And I liked, I liked drawing and art. And then it was only really in college that I realized that you could concentrate and really study the ancient world in a meaningful way. And so that's when it, it started to come together and it led to uh, grad school too, so. What, um, what were you specifically interested in when you got to college? Did you know like the area of you know, study that you wanted to explore on a deep level or was that kind of open at first and it took some time to figure out what you wanted to zero in on i am generally interested in in the ancient world but particularly greek history i think greek and, and roman history and the way that ancient writers express themselves i always found that really fascinating i i mean one thing you read you pick up a book written by an ancient historian and they write in a beautiful and compelling way in a really interesting way not that Modern historians don't write like this, mm -hmm. but you're confronted with a really different world. And I really like that. I, I like that it's strange and different and also quite beautiful and interestingly written in, in a way that a textbook, say, doesn't reach you. Yeah. So what are some of those texts that, I guess, caught your interest early on that, you know, led to like a deeper exploration for you? What were some of those texts that? that Definitely Herodotus's histories. If you ever get a chance to read Herodotus, you should. That's, I mean, that's what I tell my students, but then they have to, right? Uh, since I teach uh, a 
Greek and Roman history electives for seniors. I said, you have to read Herodotus. And then I look at the syllabus and I say, you have to read Herodotus. Yeah, it's right here. It's, it's, it's required. But no, in general, even if I wasn't teaching, even if I wasn't teaching these history electives, I would encourage anyone to pick up Herodotus. It's, it's a lot of fun, really fun, which you don't always, or at least some people don't associate with reading history. So, so Herodotus, I don't, I don't know too much about Herodotus. It's not by your bedside table. No, a book I, of I need a, I need a, you got to look under the summary. <laughs> no, no, the, the father of history. So a Greek, a Greek historian writing in the fifth century about the famous Persian wars. So in his preface, he talks about exploring the conflict, answering why the Persians and the Greeks came into conflict for the Greco-Persian War, so in the beginning of the fifth century. So he's writing about a, a generation after that conflict. And he's really interested in tracing the rise of this Persian empire, which at that time had taken over the world from the Greek point of view. Mm -hmm. And so he's very interested in tracing how this, in the one hand, small Mediterranean power, the Greeks, not unified, not strong, not wealthy, were able to successfully resist the global universal empire of the Persians when they invaded. And then on the other hand, Herodotus is interested in culture, in customs, in different peoples, in languages, and religions. And so it's not just a book about a war, it's a book about life and the different lives that you can find throughout the ancient world. Mm -hmm. So as part of talking about this war, he also talks about the growth of the Persian Empire and all of the peoples that come into contact with the Persian world. So it's not just a battle or two and understanding tactical positions of different Persian or Greek armies. It's also a description of different cultures. So not only is Herodotus the first historian in some real way, but also the first anthropologist and so you'll have a whole book about the ancient Egyptians and their customs and how they contrast with the Greek world. Mm -hmm. So he's a very universalizing historian in terms of his broad perspective on human nature, human life, the human condition. So I think when you read ancient history, they often have the quality of, in some ways, a novel. And, and you don't expect that. So I think if people think about ancient history, they don't, they don't think about how appealing ancient history can be. So yeah, you read Herodotus and you're taken to a different world and it's very fun. It's, it's fun in a way that I think other historians are not. So what were some of the ways that the Greek culture uh, resisted the Persian empire that was spreading? And this is, this is at what period of history? What time so this is, this is the fifth, this is the classical period. And really, really the Persian Wars inaugurates the classical period in ancient Greece. So the fifth century is when a lot of the stuff that people know about ancient Greece happened. So the Parthenon was constructed. Mm -hmm. We have the famous tragic festivals. So the plays of Sophocles and Euripides and Aeschylus are happening in this century. Socrates is kicking around. Mm -hmm. So all the people that you would know and love from the Greek tradition are really coming in, the, in this particular century and after the Persian Wars. So how they resisted were successfully beating back uh, the Persian tide in really famous battles like Thermopylae in the Battle of Salonis, mm -hmm. 
which I think there are recent celebrations of the Battle of Salamis, only, only recent, recently in Greece. They're, they're sort of still celebrated as these moments in history where a Greek unity and Greek freedom is contrasted with this ancient form of tyranny in the, in the Persian world, which, yeah. is a, which is a simplification, of course, but it's still very celebrated uh, even in Greece today. What, um, culturally, what were the ancient, how would you describe the ancient Greeks and kind of how, what unified their uh, societies and their culture? Yeah, that's an enormous topic. Uh, I, I, I could only rely probably on what Herodotus says. So the things that, that unify the Greeks are common language, so ancient Greek, and common customs and traditions and shared gods. So they, they're distinct from other cultures in part because they share in common their way of life mm-hmm. and how they communicate with each other. And cultural touchstones could include gods like Zeus, right? Mm-hmm. And then also cultural artifacts like Homer and that tradition. So they speak the same language and they worship the same gods, and that constructs a kind of uh, community. Hmm. And um, interesting. Uh, in the Persian Empire, uh, when did the Persian Empire fall? Like, How long did it take before they... Well, they kept kicking after they invaded Greece, and they were around the the prior century. P- people might know Cyrus the Great. I mean, it's a, it's a great epithet. Um, and Cyrus the Great set up the Persian Empire, which started in southwestern Iran, and then spread throughout the known world, at least from the Greek perspective, all the way to India, to the east, and to Egypt and Greece in the west. So an enormous ancient Near Eastern empire. And they have their own rich traditions, but it was very much a monarchy. And Herodotus, I think, was interested in contrasting the monarchy of the Persian world and the democracy of Athens, Mm -hmm. or the oligarchy that was in Sparta at the time. So it's funny you ask what makes Greeks Greeks. I mean, Herodotus explores both what makes Greeks Greeks, but also what makes them very different. And their political institutions are very different. In the Greek in the Greek world, so Athens. We think of Athens as a democracy, yes, but that was one of hundreds and hundreds of different city states that had different political arrangements. So there's a lot of disunity too, as as well as cultural unity. And so again, that's why, in some ways, it's unlikely, it seems, to some Greek readers at least, that Persia, with its strong king and strong army, like universal army, mm-hmm. Herodotus says something like a million. Uh, warriors came from the Persian world to invade Greece. How did this unlikely band of heroes resist and defeat Persia? So one of the answers is maybe there's a, there's a political or cultural difference because people in Greece were fighting for liberty, right? And, pe- and people were being compelled to fight for the king. At least this is how Herodotus phrases it. This, the picture on the ground historically is probably much more complicated. So, uh, but Herodotus is a great resource for trying to understand some of these cultural attitudes during the Persian Wars in the fifth century, which is, which is really the birth of classical Greece. And a lot of the figures that people would, I think, know from ancient history in Greece. So in the class you teach here at Gilman, you explore Herodotus and, and what is, I guess, the, col- uh, the, the course trajectory 
um, that you maybe you start out with Herodotus and, and where do you move throughout the year? Oh, I'm, I'm very evil. So I start with Homer, really. I feel like any class on Greek culture or history should start with Homer. And then, yes, we get into Herodotus and Thucydides. So the, the fall elective is ancient Greece. So we start, I think I, I describe it as from, from Agamemnon to Alexander the Great. So roughly from the end of the second millennium BCE to the fourth century BCE. So a lot of uh, long range in time. And then in the, that's the fall ancient Greece class. And then in the spring, it's the Roman Republic. So we, we start with roughly Romulus and we end with Julius Caesar's assassination. Hmm. So that's the general chronological trajectory. And then within that, you can select different authors, really cool authors in the ancient world. Herodotus and Thucydides really anchor the Greek class. So the author of the Persian Wars par excellence is Herodotus. And then the author of the Peloponnesian Wars where Greece is in decline because of civil war, let's just say, by Thucydides. And then in the Roman Republic, it's a lot of investigation of the famous figures in the Republic. So not only Romulus and Remus, but also the birth of the Republic described by the Roman historian Livy and the, the Tarquins and famous figures from the end of the Republic like Cicero and Caesar. And different emperors. Yeah, before the imperial period. So that, I mean, that's a great question. So who is the first emperor? That's a big discussion. But maybe Augustus, the Emperor Augustus. So the Roman Republic focuses on that pre-imperial period when the Republic is in operation, which in some ways is oligarchical, but is more representative as a republic than the later empire will be. So in that course, you start with the Romulus and Remus story. Can you remind me that that's the wolf and the twi twins? I mean, you, you got it. Right? right. So we start with the mythic foundations in some ways. I mean, so the the literature really starts with myth because we don't have a lot of historical accounts, written historical descriptions. Mm -hmm. And then alongside that, we look at the archaeology of, of Italy and the precursor civilizations of Italy. And then when we get more, there's more material on the ground archaeologically. And then in terms of historical texts, we move into the Republic where there's more information. And that is described by the historian Livy, who's writing in, in the time of Augustus, but is describing events from eight centuries or so before the time of writing. But yes, Romulus and Remus were considered to be historic figures, although they're, they're very much myths. And the foundation of the famous foundation of Rome uh, between the two. Where does that myth originate with the she-wolf and the twins? The... Yeah, that's a great, again, a great question. I have no idea. It's like many myths, it's very difficult to trace a trajectory of where they're from. It's like an oral tradition. It's just been passed down. Yeah, the genesis of myth is very complex. So you, you can hear twin stories, say, in a lot of myths throughout the world. In fact, I think the aforementioned Cyrus the Great, this founder of the Persian world, there might have been a traditional story where he was raised by wolves. Mm. So this is something, I think, circulating throughout the world, these... Um, these these myths where people have really unusual birth circumstances that mark them out for greatness even something like the prince and the pauper this this idea that people can come from very humble circumstances but have noble blood and it's revealed dramatically over time mm -hmm. so you can look at this stuff from a lot of different angles 
I mean, we try to look at it as historians, not as people studying myth or literature per se. And so we try to think about what does the myth of Romulus and Remus tell us about what people thought about their past? And what does it mean that the foundation of Rome was in some ways founded on fratricide and the killing of brother against brother? Mm-hmm. So this like violence and conflict that begins Rome is something that we try to talk about in historic terms throughout the course. So we just had our last discussion about Julius Caesar's assassination. And so we were trying to make comparisons between the way that Rome was born with this uh, King Romulus and the way that the Republic ended with this pseudo king, this aspiring king, Julius Caesar, for some symmetry. Hmm. But yeah, myth is fascinating and, and you can you can look at it from a number of lenses. The historian, I suppose, might say, eh, it's just just uh, made up. It's just and, fictional. Yeah. So we, it has no use. Some people think, well, we can maybe take all of the weird elements away and there's some historical truth. And then there's maybe a cultural historian perspective that says, okay, well, we can't believe this, but people believed it. And therefore, it's important. It tells us something about cultural belief and expectation. And so that's sort of the path that I I try to take the path of the cultural historian in my class. So not to discard the myth, but to address it and see what it can tell us about ancient society. So if you have a coin, say, so this is a parallel with the material evidence. If you have a coin that has Romulus and Remus or a statue that has Romulus and Remus and the so-called Capitoline Wolf, what does that say? Like, what is that communicating about your belief in your own culture and your own history and the birth of your country or nation. And what does the wolf symbolize? If you're the sons, descendants of Romulus and Remus, what does it say that you were raised by wolves? It's very different. What what does that story say about the people and their beliefs? Oh, you'll have your, to, you'll have opinion. to, you'll have to ask my seniors this question. What are some of the yeah. takes that they have? I about mean, that? I, it's, yeah, it's interesting because, well, the, I think the fratricide, I think I'm really interested in that. That's, that's part, I mean, this is maybe uh, not a, a wise historical analysis or so, something that you would say outside the classroom, but there's some, something baked in violence is baked into Roman society, right? And you can see that in the myth of Romulus and Remus in a really interesting way. So maybe the, maybe the better answer would be compare it with other societies in the way they think about how their foundations work. Mm-hmm. So the ancient Athenians, for example, argue that they were autochthonous, that they were born from the earth. That's one tradition, that they always, the land always belonged to them because they sprung up from it. Whereas the Romans believed that they, they were in some ways immigrants. They had an immigrant story. And in fact, Romulus and Remus were abandoned to die uh, along the Tiber River. And how they created a city was collecting local ruffians and criminals together as this kind of Robin Hood-like gang in a, a small village. What, what does that communicate about your culture that you have this very different story? You're not claiming that you were always there, but that you were this rough and tumble people uh, from the rustic countryside. You have a hardy constitution, right? So I think those are, maybe those are some arguments to be made about how we can use myth in history, which is an enormous topic. Hmm. 
And I think that if you you think about the myth in these terms, I think it is a, it's a fun way of trying to explore or fun way into thinking about the way the Romans thought about themselves. We're, we're rough, we're tumble, we're warlike. We, we conquer places, we move into them, as opposed to always staying in the same place. So that might be one way to answer that question. Very difficult question. Good one, though. Hmm. Can you, um, I'm curious a little bit about like slavery in Roman society and maybe how that began or originated and how it played a crucial role in their, mm-hmm. I guess, functioning and spread as a, as a society? Right. So this was a big topic that we, we just addressed in our, our Roman history class. It's an enormous topic. It, it deserves its own course in and of itself. The differences between ancient slavery and modern slavery and then the role slavery played in ancient society both greece and rome so slavery of course existed well before rome existed ancient slavery was ubiquitous and it came from perhaps different directions than transatlantic slavery and modern slavery but it had some similar effects in society and so a lot of the early slaves that existed in the Greek and Roman world were captured in war. So you con- and Rome is always, always conquering. Mm-hmm. And so each city that it takes, it may negotiate some settlement so that people are still okay and can occupy and have some kind of position of authority in their cities. And then some are just reduced, the cities are reduced and everyone enslaved. So slavery becomes, I think, a big deal in Roman society after Greece is conquered. So countless slaves were brought over from the eastern part of the Mediterranean to the western part after the the famous Punic Wars. So people might know the Punic Wars with Hannibal crossing the Alps, right? So after that time period, there were tons of war captives brought in to Rome. And I think that's when it starts to change Roman society. and, And you have slaves working throughout both Rome and then the, the, the Italian peninsula. And in the imperial period, I think we have a lot of evidence of, of slavery, slaves' attitudes, and demographic information about slaves through different archaeological materials where we can get a lot more information about the lives of slaves and how they functioned. But I'm no expert on this stuff. I mean, it's, it's funny. It reminds me of when you're teaching in class and a student asks a question, you go, oh, no. this is like either a whole book topic or this is a whole field of study and ancient slavery is a really robust one with a lot of a lot of cool information and uh it's an enormous topic yeah it's hard i think it's hard uh anytime when you get a very broad question and you know you're used to functioning in the nitty-gritty and studying the details of it but for someone like me who knows very little about ancient greek and roman societies you know the broad questions come to my mind first, and those are usually the most difficult, probably. Oh, absolutely. They're, in some ways, they're philosophical. So the, like the one you answered before, you asked before, the interrelationship between myth and history. It's an essential question, but you could spend your whole life trying to come up with an answer. What, a, what is ancient slavery? It, just to put the adjective ancient on it is to say that it's distinct from modern slavery, and it is in different ways. Mm-hmm. So one way, simple way, and you know, people far more ex- intelligent and knowledgeable than I can answer this more lucidly, but the, I- the idea being that in one way, war captives became slaves. It was part of the, 
the air that people breathed in the ancient world in many contexts. So slavery was around far before Greco-Roman antiquity and persisted, unfortunately, far long after. Uh, but one, one way was the acquisition, so through war. Slavery was part of life. Another aspect, I would say, from the Roman context is that manumission was possible. So people did get freed, and they launched very successful careers. And part of this is possible in, in part because it wasn't as racially motivated or based. So I think the transatlantic slave, there are similarities in the slave experiences, say, of a Frederick Douglass in an American context, which can be productively used to understand slave experience of captivity in the ancient world. But at the same time, it wasn't as racially motivated. So in the example that I used, there were Greeks being enslaved in a Roman context, or people from what is now the modern Ukraine enslaved and brought to Rome. Or when Julius Caesar, who we talked about briefly before, mm -hmm. when he invaded Gaul, said something like a million people were either killed or brought into slavery into Rome. So this wasn't racial in, in that sense. It was more cultural. Cultural, geographical. Mm -hmm. In what ways? You're the, you're the enemy, and or you speak a different language. Maybe you have different gods. Uh, maybe not. But you're brought, your, your status has changed because you lost your, your freedom in war. Or you were later born into it. So that's, that's also part of the slave condition. And there are lots of people who think about this as either a problem. I mean, very few, but there are some philosophers and people who think about this as a problem. But many people just accept it as a fact of, fact of life, which is very difficult to get our heads around, I think. How, how would a slave... Uh, um gain manumission like mm -hmm. is that just a matter of time is that the the job is done and now you're free you know, or how, how did that work all of these questions i'm waiting for someone more knowledgeable to come in and sit down <laughs> and answer these questions so i'll, I'll give you a bad one <laughs> well i mean so so how did a how did a slave get free or how what did a slave feel about his status yeah like what how does a slave get free in in ancient greek in ancient rome so in ancient rome the manumission process is um well, your master has to, to free you, right? But it, in some ways, it's economically productive to do that if the, the slave has some kind of skill. So you can buy, buy your freedom. You can buy your freedom. And that doesn't mean that you're free absolutely. That means that you're a free person who maybe can participate in politics, but still has to maybe contribute socially or politically to your master. So a concrete example. You're free. Maybe you only have one name, say. Your name is Hercules. You're from Eastern Mediterranean. You're a Greek. And you're freed after serving your master faithfully and maybe doing a trade skill for him and, and saving up enough money to buy your freedom. Your master allows you to save some money to buy yourself out of debt. Then you, you take on your master's name as if you're part of his household. So instead of Hercules, you're Hercules Yulia say, I don't know, you're part of Julius Caesar's family. And so you have this association with your master forever after. It's, gotcha. it's part of your name. So you're part of his wider circle or network of, of people who depend on him in some ways. So no, you're not, you don't have your, your body's not under his control like you were when you were a slave, but he is running for office. You better vote for him. Or he needs someone to protect him in the Senate because it gets, you know, in the forum it gets pretty dodgy and people are stabbing each other. You got to be next to him, help him. 
You had to support, hey, you make, maybe you're making money now. Maybe you have your own business. You, maybe you should help him out and lend him money. So, so you're, you're usually tied to your tied. master for, forever. I think so. And I, th- I think it's amazing. It's, in some ways, it's amazing the mobility in the ancient world with some types of slaves. And this is not for every slave, right? This is maybe in an ideal situation. If you're working in a mine or you're a prisoner of war and you, they put you in a terrible circumstance, your life is short and maybe miserable. But especially, I think, in an urban context, there's an opportunity maybe for you to learn a trade or to get independence or at the death of your master to be freed. And then you're part of the social fabric of Roman society. And of course, you need some connection. You, of course, you need a connection to represent you in the court of law uh, or you need a political person to support. So you're, it's, it's, um, it's the shadow of slavery, but then it's also a way to plug into Roman society so that you have someone who can support you and give you the influence that they have as a free citizen. So Friedman's histories are really fascinating. And why, so why I use names as an example is that we have, we have tombstones that exist of people who were of a slave status and who became freed and freedmen. And sometimes they're very fancy. I mean, it, it takes wealth to make this kind of thing and to communicate this. And for some people later in the imperial period, especially if you were, you were a slave to Augustus, it's a big deal. I mean, you might have a lot of wealth and resources. You might identify with your, your master. Mm. So it was a source of pride sometimes. For some people, yeah. yeah. And they communicated that on their, their tombstones, and, they communi- and, and there was anxiety about that from people who were free. You, maybe you were, your whole life you were free and you were Roman. So what's this socially upwardly mobile... It's a little uh, Great Gatsby-esque where you have people who, because of their connections to the imperial household, even though they're a slave, and they're not Roman, they're freed, they're freedmen now, and they have all this money and connections, like new money. Right. And so that Petronius is uh, Cana Trimalchionis, which I know inf- informed the Great Gatsby, for example, uh, that's the story of a really wealthy former slave who has this fantastic feast and fantastic banquet and he's an example of bad new money. He's so tasteless. Yeah. Everything that he does. He has um, silly poetry readings and, and disgusting banquets. He doesn't know what he's doing, but he has more money than, than anyone because of these connections. And so there's an anxiety, I think, in Roman culture. You can find it in literature in a really interesting way about what's, how are these freedmen so powerful and wealthy? Uh, they're corrupting on society. And we see this play out in a lot of other historical situations, too, which is really interesting. So ancient slavery is a fascinating topic. I wish I knew more about it uh, because it's really, really, I think it's a growing field. I think people are thinking about slavery uh, more thoughtfully and a lot more work has been done on it and it would make a cool class. Yeah. So like every question you've asked so far is, oh yeah, that would make a really cool class. Yeah, because it's so broad. Yeah. But, but Well, no, myth, myth and history, ancient slavery, uh, you know, what makes Greek, Greek identity even. I think those will all be really cool classes. Well, here's another one that I think um, okay, we touched on a little bit is the just the way that the ancients handled death. We were talking about tombstones, and I and I I don't know much about this topic, but just the concept of death for them, and you mm-hmm. know how they treated, uh, I, I guess, burials and uh, the afterlife Myth, and that kind of thing. Slavery, death. Okay, Let's see, a, what's our next got topic? A dense, dense couple <laughs> courses, a couple electives for next year. Well, yeah, uh, yeah, death in the ancient world. That would also be cool. Well, you know, it's people for people who work on archaeology. So, 
I'm more interested in literature and historical writing with my interest in classics. Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of people who do archaeology. And in some ways, it's, it is a meditation on death because you're looking at tombstones, but you're also looking at the, the remnants of the past of, of people long, long dead and trying to reconstruct their lives. So it's a, it's a really interesting question from just an archaeological perspective. But what they thought about death, yeah, I guess it depends. It depends on who you were and what gods you worshipped. I think that in, so for my juniors in my, one of my advanced Latin classes, so I teach, not, in addition to these history electives, I also teach ancient Greek, a language, and Latin classes in the classics department. And so for my juniors, we were just, actually their final project is to recreate a mystery cult and initiate their classmates. No, no uh, animals were sacrificed in the making of these initiations, don't <laughs> worry. But was to sort of get inside the head of someone from the ancient world interested in, in religion, interested in the afterlife, and it's precisely on this question of death. So if you were maybe a traditional religious practitioner in the ancient world, maybe you worshipped someone like Zeus or Jupiter in a Roman context, maybe you didn't have a clear idea of the afterlife, you, you knew that it existed, you, maybe you would go to the underworld, maybe there would be a nice part of it for you, but it wasn't, and again, this is a simplification, but it, it wasn't focused maybe on the afterlife. It was focused, religious practice was focused on what the gods can do for you in the moment, like this worldly benefit. Hmm. So I, I make a sacrifice to Jupiter or Apollo and I do well in battle or, uh, I, I ace the quiz because I made a sacrifice to Minerva or Athena or something like that. And then maybe I would vow a sacrifice or a temple to gods for this very reason. But the mystery cults are really interesting because they are interested in the afterlife and ensuring that you get a really good one. And a mystery cult is just a group of people that come together across this belief and right in... yeah cult they're called cults but it's a little bit of a misnomer it's like a religious sect and it's a mystery because some of their rites are secret so if you sacrifice in the ancient world this is a big topic but generally speaking you got a temple and you got an altar in front of it and on that altar is written a god's name like athena you know straight up what you're doing and all of the rites are outside of the building. So you make a, a sacrifice to the god and you communicate with them publicly with like a party and a festival. So mystery cults are mysterious, some of them at least, because a lot of the rites are done behind closed doors. So what kind of things would, would people sacrifice during these events? So for a regular, what, it kind of depends on the god you're sacrificing. Sometimes gods prefer particular things. I mean, really deluxe, really classy sacrifices would be cattle because they're expensive. Mm -hmm. And you get the added benefit of having a party afterwards where people can eat meat. Mm -hmm. So that would be a really cool opportunity to have a festival. But it could be, a sacrifice could be something as humble as pouring out some water. Yeah, uh, It could be pouring out some uh, milk or grain. It could, it could range from something very simple, uh, a prayer or a vow that you do before you cross a stream in the middle of the woods with no one watching. Or it could be something as lavish and big as a public sacrifice of lot, a lot of cattle and the whole city's involved. So they could really range. Hmm. So, in, so that's the st standard Greco-Roman religion, say. 
you know what you get. You got a cool temple, you got a cool altar, it's a public service, everyone's outside, they see what's going on. The mystery cults are distinguished from, they have some hidden knowledge and you don't know exactly what it is. But once you're initiated, you have that hidden knowledge and it usually ends up in a good place in the afterlife. And so the cool, this is connects to myth. So the people who in myth who went to the underworld and came back, they have the special knowledge. And so figures like Orpheus get associated with mystery cults. So one mystery cult would be Orphism from the ancient world. Or the juniors just presented today on Isis. And Isis and Osiris are underworld deities in Egyptian myth, and they have knowledge of the underworld. Mm -hmm. So these would be examples of, so if you're part of this mystery religion, let's call it a religion, so we don't have to worry about the baggage of the term cult, then you do have a real sense that death is just the beginning. And maybe for more traditional Greco-Roman religion, death is a part of life. It's inescapable. It's important. But it's not an emphasis of religious practice. So that's maybe a simplification of a very complex topic. Hmm. Interesting. So death, life, taxes is next. I can't answer that. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that's fascinating. There's a lot to uh, go through there. We can have a couple couple different courses. Um Oh, yeah, that's terrible. I shouldn't, because I'll be competing with myself, right? I think so, you, so yeah. You, how many t courses do you teach here, three or four? So four, one's a mixed class. It's like a one-room schoolhouse for ancient Greek. And then the two electives, but the electives are fall, spring. And then one, uh, two Latin classes. So I teach freshmen, honors Latin, and then juniors, Latin four. And I think, yeah, I think that's all of it. So lots of stuff. That, that's so to return to one of your earliest questions. I mean, that's the I would have loved. I mean, I, I guess this is sort of <laughs> this is maybe um, self-aggrandizing, but I would have loved to take these classes as a kid. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's not true, but for maybe that's not. I mean, it sounds like it was true. true if your gym teacher was telling you to stop oh, think, yeah. thinking about the ancient world. Well, in no, you, third you, grade. You raise a good point. Yeah. <laughs> well, I probably shouldn't have worked. A, a toga that day but <laughs> i i would say that the <laughs> I, i'd say that there was nothing like this when i was the idea that i could teach ancient greek and latin and history classes was so attractive to me and that students would be interested in them and so that's a that's a really magnificent part of of gilman and, and i don't i don't know how many places you can you can honestly say to have that kind of diversity in teaching and then, for, I mean, for you too, and for other teachers to be able to create your own class right. and your own curriculum. So a hundred, I, mean, I could think of a hundred electives. I mean, I'd be competing with myself, but I'm sure that you could too, right? Yeah. With your, with your teaching. And so it's the same for me. I, I mean, the ancient novel, I mean, ancient science fiction, it exists. Stuff like that exists. And, you know, classics, maybe not a lot of people know about all the stuff, but they're, they're really cool texts and they can make really interesting classes. So what, I mean, what classes have you designed? So I have thought? two senior electives that yeah. I teach uh, for English. The first is a leadership character in literature class, which I kind of took from Bart Griffith, who was here before. He actually is at Shadyside Academy in Pittsburgh. Ah, now. yes. The head of school Poached. there. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, he's there. Great school. We need to get him on this podcast because he's a great guy. But um, he taught a leadership and character and lit class that I took from him when he left. Cool. 
Um, and then I teach a great short fiction class in the spring for seniors. We just had our last class of the year today. How did that go? It was good. I mean, yeah, time to time to move on. Sad, but you know, I think the seniors are they've got one more day left. They're they're itching to get out of here. Are you saying that they're not the most engaged? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, senioritis yeah. through so the roof. So again, much like mystery cult people, they're thinking about the next life, yep. uh, their college life, their summer life, and not the, uh, the this moment. Yeah. I think that that's probably fair to say. What stuff do you read in your leadership? Um, this was my first year really in person teaching them because last year was virtual. Right. But we read bunch of different texts we read a play called all my sons by arthur miller mm-hmm. um we read siddhartha oh, okay siddhartha read a pretty heavy book that i was reading on my own and i kind of that's another benefit to teaching eric gilman is you can you can design your curriculum and even and amazing, even when it's it? already designed you can kind of add a few it's, things it's such a gift yeah i was reading this book called when breath becomes air and i found it really powerful in terms of I don't know, just moving me and making me think about certain things. It's about this doctor who's in his third year of, I guess, I guess he's becoming a doctor. Um, he's in his third year of residency and he gets like terminal cancer. And then he wanted to write a book in the last year, I guess, of his life. And a very powerful story about just his, I guess, career up until that point and his life and, uh, it's called When Breath Becomes Air. So that worked really well in, in that character class because it had him, made him think about some of those bigger, deeper questions. So, yeah, how, how do you define character in your, in your class then? Uh, I think it's really an exploration. I mean, we talk about a lot of different, I guess. I'm going to turn the tables. Mm-hmm. How do you define character? Yeah, it's a tough <laughs> one. Uh, a lot of different moral qualities i think we talk about like gilman's mission and the gilman five a bit no 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 yeah i've always thought about how to actually incorporate that in in class especially with ancient philosophy i know it's lame but ancient philosophy like thinking about your class like starting with the platonic dialogue and like a virtue would be kind of cool right uh in the same with virtue ethics i think that's becoming more and more popular it seems like you can't turn on your computer without some weird stoic podcast coming up making like a recommendation about virtue but like yeah ryan holiday do you know him yeah yeah. he's he's on my uh he's a newsletter and he writes a lot about the virtues and the emperors and yeah yeah no i uh, stoicism is is hot that's a very roman roman thing but no i think a virtue ethics class or a um a class that that uses at least the ancient conceptions of different virtues as a starting place would be really cool. I think for a boy school in particular, I, I've always thought about that. Mm-hmm. So what does Plato have to say? You, and usually the, the dialogues are great because they, they are very open-ended. They don't have a neat resolution or definition. So like you were talking about character, it's an exploration. It's precisely the way that platonic dialogues often work right. as an exploration. So it's a great way to start thinking about things like that. Yeah. But I have to stop uh, potential electives creating them. On the, yeah, because then you have to teach them. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I think that that's what I want for the classes for the students to kind of think about their character traits and what is important to them and the virtues they want to strive for in life. I that's really that's, cool. That's part of it, and yeah. you, you get those questions through reading different texts and talking, and you know, I think that's really what it is—is is an ex- exploration. Especially, I think it's good in their senior year. I would have maybe preferred that class to be in the spring because it's a little bit more, 
I guess central to what they're thinking about right now as they're moving on. But um, that was a great that was a great fall class. But you had nothing like these classes senior year when you were in high school, right? No, I don't think so. I don't remember too many electives. There are so many yeah. different classes you can yeah, take yeah. here. No, that and that's that it's that uh, diversity. I think that's really cool, and I, that's it makes it attractive as a teacher and I hope as a student to have different options because as, in some ways structurally it prepares you for college too. Right. And having choice and, and being able to follow your, your passions in a, in a way that engages you. So your first year here at Gilman, um, sounds like you enjoy the open-endedness of the course curriculum making and dangerous to have open-ended yeah. course curriculum. Sounds like you me. enjoy your classes. Oh yeah. 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 It's great. What, um, it's what great. else do you, do you like about this first year? What has gone well for you so far? It's nice to get to get familiar with the students. I mean, every school is different and, and functions differently. And every school has a different schedule and a different culture. And so it's really been nice to finally hang out with students again because the online teaching, I'm sure, wasn't ideal for anyone. <laughs> and so I, I think in addition to the diversity of teaching, being able to get to know students is great. And just like I'm sure that you enjoy in secondary school teaching is that you can see them develop. And I, I know the students and I'll be able to learn more about them next year and to be able to see that longer scale of time mm -hmm. is, a, is a gift as well. Right. So I really like that. And I can see it here clearly that both of the culture and the students that I like, uh, how that will, will grow in time. Yeah. So, but a lot of things I like, I mean, yeah, Gilman's great. Yeah. I'm a fan. Yeah. Good. <laughs> uh, what were you doing before coming here? Were you teaching last year virtually? Yes. I was teaching at Catholic university of America. So I was, I was teaching college students and yes, it was all zoom, zoom all the time. Hmm. So in that, a college class, how many were in your zoom? Oh gosh. Zoom courses? What a great question. I don't, you know what? It seems like a lifetime ago. It's like, you might as well be asking me about it does the, it does isn't it strange you the, might as well be asking me about the persian wars i think i probably knew more about that than my <laughs> last year of uh, teaching online it was a fugue state it i mean it would range from maybe 10 to 15 students to, to over 20 i think mm -hmm. i could be wrong about that again it was the before time so right. i don't know but zoom engaging people on zoom i never figured out exactly how to do that yeah i mean uh, i don't know if anyone has yeah I mean, I think I needed more uh, bells and whistles. Yeah, more props. You know, one thing that I don't think really did make a difference, but I felt that it did in my mind, which may be a value, is that I always tried to stand when I was teaching hmm. as if I was still in a classroom rather than sit. So I felt like it maybe it was just a trick to wake myself up, but as if I was you know, walking around, pacing in class, I tried to always, no matter what, stand. Which required not wearing pajamas, but I think that that's a sacrifice I was willing to make. <laughs> what do you think that did? I mean, wakes yourself up a little yeah. bit, but oh yeah, it doesn't. It, it sounds like a uh, a TED talk. No, I it wasn't a power pose or anything. It, it, I think it just woke me up, and it to me it felt more like a classroom to stand and talk to people like right. you would in front of a classroom. Yeah, and so for me, it kind of recreated that feeling uh, physiologically of being in class. I mean, it was ultimately I don't. I don't think it was a good replacement. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think that students at home had a desk that they sat in uh, to recreate the experience virtually. But it was, it was good. It, I mean, it felt 
like it was not sitting in a meeting. Yeah, right. It felt more real, but maybe that was just an illusion. What would have been some of the differences uh, that you've noticed between teaching college students in previous years and teaching at an independent school with, with high school boys? Yeah, it's funny. I, I taught in another independent school as well and in college. And it's an interesting question because sometimes there's no difference at all. I, I think that freshmen in college often are very much like high school juniors or seniors, that it really depends on the institution and the class. Obviously, I think that some students at the college level, they're definitely there to, to get a credit. They're just there so they don't get fined and uh, you can really sense that. You can really sense that. And a lot of, you know, I think this is probably the case for high school students too, that your freshmen, sophomores may be more bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. And freshmen, sophomores in college also feel that way, that they haven't become jaded juniors. Mm -hmm. So yet it really depends on the class. Some of them remind me of, some of my you know, best classes remind me of my best college students. So yeah. in some ways, the class is the class. And I've taught a range of ages, too. So some of the, the classes that I taught at Catholic, like Latin or Greek or something like that, it will be kids, like an undergrad, <clears throat> and then it will be like older monks or something. And they come with very different experiences, life experiences and, and backgrounds. But they're, we're, all, we're all students. We're all on the path and trying to figure it out. So uh, the more that I compare the two in my mind, the more similarities I see. Older monks at Catholic University? Oh, yeah. Really? Catholic University's got a great, they've got lots of different programs for training priests. Hmm. So you have different monastic orders and different degrees that you can take within the Catholic Church that are required to uh, perform services and you know, climb the ranks in the Catholic Church. I'm not a Catholic, so I'm not as familiar with that tradition. But it, yeah, it's it's wild. Wow, it's wild to to have a Zoom class and you have people zooming in from all over the world and from all different kinds of ages. So when I teach summer classes at Catholic, you have an undergrad or a high school student trying to read the Aeneid in Latin, and then you have an an older student or a monk who is zooming in from across the world trying to get their Latin requirements to get there you know, their degree to do the, the pastoral work that they're doing. Wow. So it's really fascinating. It was a really wide, it was a really cool experience. Did you feel like you could get some interesting back and forth or conversation over Zoom and expose some of those different perspectives? Or was it more lecture-based when you were, I guess, it teaching online? It was challenging. It was really challenging to get people, I think, involved in discussion. That was the, the thing that I found the most difficult. I think when it, the pandemic started, that first transition from in-person to online, however many years ago that was, it feels like a lifetime ago, I, I was doing a discussion class. And I think managing a discussion is the most difficult kind of teaching that I've ever done. And I've done- On Zoom? Well, just in general. Really? For years, I've always had a discussion something for years and years and years. Yeah. And managing that and doing it well, I find the most challenging hmm. of any kind of teaching. Because I can bore, I, I mean, I can bore you about the Persian Wars, for, as you as you well know by now, uh, for any <laughs> length of, for any length of time, any length of time. So that's like the lecture part is easy, but getting students to talk to each other, cultivating discussion, that's the hardest thing. Mm -hmm. And so I found that difficult in person, let alone on Zoom. 
Right. So trying trying to come up with strategies to, to pit students against each other in a slightly Machiavellian fashion is what I, I ended up doing. Yeah. I would say, so, Samantha, you disagree with John in this respect. Yeah. And see what they do. So yeah. which is a, sort of a cheap ploy, but I did it all the time. I did. I had to do this project for the master's program that I did when I first came to Gilman a couple of years ago. And my like year long question or project that I wanted to work on was creating an environment that um, made everyone feel comfortable and engaged in my classroom. Pretty like open ended topic, but I chose it because coming here, I was pretty shocked at like the rigidness of having the boys and the girls in the same classroom. And it's kind of awkward at times my first class because they were all nervous. No one wanted to speak. Mm, And I didn't feel like I was that good at making it like a loose, comfortable environment. So I wanted to focus on that. You figured it. Did you figure it out? Well, it d- depends on the class. It depends on the chemistry. Write it down chemistry. for me and slide it across the table. <laughs> Just write it down for me. And I like that. I think, I think competition, though, oh, is one of the, yeah. I guess, components that I figured out. Like at the beginning of the year, I try to have some competitive games, or especially for high schoolers right, right. who are competitive. They're you know, trying to get, get to the best colleges and get the best grades. And what we were talking about earlier like the boys and the girls dynamic in my classes, making it somewhat competitive at the start, I think loosens everything up for the rest of the year. And that's kind of what you're doing with the, you know, Samantha, you disagree with this. You're kind of pitting them against each other a little bit. I should say too, that on all of my classes, they happen to be co-ed right now. So that's a little bit different than some other teachers experiences. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that changes the classroom dynamic or not for discussion. If people are more bashful or, or less bashful as a result. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, that could be another variable. But yeah, staging uh, debates and d- disagreement, kind of sowing seeds of discord. That's not how I phrase it, of course. Right. But that, that can be produ- productive conflict. That's how I should say. Just get some emotional appeal, I guess. That's what it does. Is Yeah. No, well, to have be invested in a position, even arbitrarily, by knowing what someone has written. Like pre-writing for discussion, I think, is, has been very useful in, in staging these encounters in class. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't always do it well, but when it, it works, it works quite nicely to mitigate some of the challenge of getting people to speak and, and about something that might be difficult and in including, you know, these, these like cosmic questions that you're right. asking. Right? right. I mean, that's, that's a lot, that's a lot to take in, but if you've done at least some reflection and for me trying to get students to engage with primary sources, ancient sources. So what is, so maybe you don't know about what makes Greek identity. I mean, I don't, but maybe Herodotus does, and you can appeal to him as a source. Mm-hmm. That would be one example. And, and that applies to literature classes as well, which I think is useful. But no, if you figured it out, let me know. At least send me an email or something. I'd like to figure that out. Yeah, I'll print something out for you. <laughs> print out a pamphlet. More experienced teachers could educate me about that. So a couple more questions I have for you. The first is, um, in your line of expertise in ancient mm-hmm. Greek and Roman studies, mm-hmm. uh, is there something that you're focused on right now that you enjoy learning about on your own that, you know, other people listening to this might might want to check out or look into a little bit more and have a conversation with you about? And then the, the final question is about your book recommendation here. Wow, that's a, that's a great question. I don't know. I mean... I'm always interested in different aspects of the ancient world, and some of them aren't even Greco-Roman. So you think, oh, classics, 
you like the latest classics books. But I love just random books on aspects of ancient culture. So there are books that I've encountered recently on cuneiform and Sanskrit and the ancient classical traditions of other peoples and other cultures. And so, yeah, if, if anyone wants to talk about what, what constitutes the classics in these other traditions, that I would love to learn more about that. And I have some book re- recommendations there. But yeah, trying to, I think people who like classics, people who do classical languages, are always interested in other languages too. Mm-hmm. So Sanskrit would be a great example of an, a rich ancient language from another tradition that there are parallels with, say, ancient Greek, but has a, a really rich, fulsome vocabulary, language, syntax, culture. And so just reading about ancient India has been really rewarding. Hmm. And so what one of the challenges is what is classics? Like, do you study Moby Dick or do you like classical music? You must be really into Bach. Okay, well, classics is, is not the best term for what we study. These the ancient literature, history, and art of the Mediterranean. Uh, but it is kind of a useful category to think, well, what, what do cultures think as, as elevated in status in all of these different traditions? So classics more broadly is thinking about what is what survives the test of time and by what means in these different cultures. So I'm becoming more and more interested in this, maybe a, a maybe more multicultural or global sense of classics. So what's the classics in insert your insert whatever culture or country mm-hmm. in China in in India and why and why, why? yeah 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 so i i would love i think one of the don't hold me to this another elective would be a I, and i've taught a class like this before on comparative mythology so so not just the greeks and romans but norse mythology and mesopotamian mythology and chinese mythology and trying to draw connections between them. Hmm. So I th- so if anyone's interested in in what is maybe not Greco-Roman antiquity even, but what is antiquity largely conceived, hmm. I'd, I'd love to be educated and to talk to them about it. Because hopefully that stuff is exactly the kind of stuff that can inform future teaching and in the department in general. So hmm. classics broadly conceived, it's a really cool idea. Classics broadly conceived, another broad, podcast question I, yeah or, i don't i don't yes absolutely no short simple questions well, <laughs> well I'll, I'll do my research and maybe i'll have some more questions for you on the, oh, on no. the next episode and oh, then no. i need to get more educated what is your book recommendation here oh okay so book book plug this is uh i'm recommending the periodic table by uh, primo levy hmm so i'm holding it up to the sure. camera Should i hold it up to this camera here yeah that'd be great okay whoa Nice. I haven't done enough plug book plugs. Okay. Should have brought my Herodotus too. I could have really Whoop. mimed it at the appropriate time. Plug that in there on the on the video, Cesare can make that happen. What is this book? So I, I really enjoy 20th century Italian literature, and so Primo, Primo Levi is very famous as a as a writer, uh, primarily of the Holocaust. And so he had a very famous work. I think that it was published under the title in English, A Survival in Auschwitz. Mm-hmm. So it's a really beautiful account of a Italian Jew survival from the Holocaust and his experiences in a year surviving Auschwitz. So it's a very powerful book. I would encourage anyone to read 
that book. But he also is a trained chemist. In fact, it's one of the reasons why he was able to survive in Auschwitz was that he had this specialized training. And so they assigned him special tasks. And so part of his life, though, was just working in a paint factory and doing like chemistry stuff. And so also becoming a writer in part by surviving the Holocaust, he decided to reflect on his experience, experiences and put it into writing. And I, I would say one of his, so in addition to that book, The Periodic Table is his reflection of science and poetry. Like the Periodic Table elements as a way of thinking about his own life and the poetry of science. Hmm. So I know nothing about chemistry. It was not one of my, it was like soccer. In high school, it wasn't one of my strong suits. But the way he writes about science makes it beautiful. Hmm. It's like this really interesting marriage of science and, and poetry. Ooh. So it's, it's a prose account. It's, it's a series of short stories based on his life, including his experiences in the death camps, but then also as a chemist. And it's his reflection of these um, different experiences, studying chemistry in, in school, using chemistry in his day-to-day -day life, and reflections on, on his own life. Hmm. And so there are a series of short stories named after each of the elements. Wow, that sounds interesting. Yeah, I think it starts with argon. It starts with the noble gases and ends in carbon. And each is a short reflection. And they're, they're really wonderful. And again, I don't know anything about chemistry, and so, but the way he describes things, yeah. the way he describes uh, technology and the chemical process is really beautiful. And captivating to me wow. and it, of course his personal life and his other books are wonderful too excellent so check check out primo levy the periodic table the periodic table awesome thank you very much for the wreck and evan thank you very much for coming on the podcast today. glad to be here in the studio yeah thank you mm -hmm.